This week's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, visit audibletrial.com slash insideoutside. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash insideoutside to download your free audiobook today. Also, Dillashaw LLC. Not all attorneys are focused on startup legal issues. From setting up your entity to vesting agreements and term sheets, Bard has experience and connections working with startups everywhere and has been a trusted resource for startups in the Valley, Austin, and around the Midwest. When you're starting a company, it's super important to think through each phase of the overall funnel. Last week, we discussed the first two parts of Dave McClure's pirate metrics, acquisition and activation. This week, we'll be focusing on the final three parts, er, retention, referral, and revenue. We also sat down with Brian Spaley, incredible entrepreneur, co-founder of popular apparel company Bonobos, founder and CEO of Trunk Club, and just a really smart human. Just hearing the history of Bonobos and Trunk Club was really fascinating, so you don't want to miss it. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. I'm Paul Jarrett. Uh, it's a good week. How are we doing this week? So much better than last week. We were a little <laughs> off last week, guys. <laughs> we're yeah. Back. Yeah. A little. Vacation. But we're back. We're back. <laughs> But we're back. And Matt, Part two. Matt has a new haircut. I know. Brian is still looking very young, vim, and vigor. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So this week we're going to be talking about the, the Hold three. on before we get into this. <laughs> okay. I want to know how you guys are doing. Well, I'm doing well. Yeah. You said that in your radio voice. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good week. Um, What's new with you guys? I haven't seen you for ages. You were gallivanting around, yeah, weren't you? Yeah, I'm just f***ing around. <laughs> farting around. What, what, what was uh, Kurt Vonnegut's quote? Um, Humans were put here for nothing more than to fart around. <laughs> um, it's very profound. Yes. It Works is, with cows, too. It's like you're in denial of that quote, and you're like, crap, he's right. So, okay, I hijacked enough of the episode. What are we talking about? Part so, two? Yeah, part two of the uh, last week. Last week, the we funnel. about the funnel. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. Pyrometrics. I, re- I remember. Bouncing around acquisition, activation. Yep. And then this week we're going to be talking about the, the three R's, retention, referral, and revenue. R. The R part of that. I'm going to make the assumption that we have a sweet sound effect for the R. <laughs> you got to drop the Y, though. I mean, it's kind of, you know, most pirates have the yar. Yeah. This is just R. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's like a pirate with a lisp. Maybe I'll just sit back pirate and Pirate with a speech something. impediment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, retention, referral, and. All right. Other. So let's recap. Activation yes. and uh, acti- acquisition. And activation. Acquisition, activation are the first parts of the funnel. You got to find customers. You've, then you got to do something with them or have them do something to you. And then. The next step is retention. So, so uh, retention, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super passionate about retention because I've seen businesses fail because, you know, they, they have too much of a leaky bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's something that should be focused on. And, and, and it's, it's a very, very wide-ranging topic because you could have 10 million reasons why your retention is bad. And the thing is, not always. You, you think it's one thing, but it's actually something else. And you spend your time working on this yeah, thing yeah. while you, while your leaky bucket is not being fixed. So it's very rarely is it what? Uh, no, I won't say very rarely, but um, 
there are times when what people tell you why they aren't using your product isn't really true and it's not because they're being sneaky it's because they just haven't put enough thought into it or they just haven't they don't know what are they really trying to say yeah right I mean there's a lot of like if you're building an app or you're you know you're trying to get somebody to buy or you know you're trying to get them to retain there's a lot of really, really deep psychological principles that, and I'm no psychologist, but uh, there's a lot that goes into the thinking of, you know, why am I continuing to use this thing? Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. But yep. So we have this product um, called Bulu Insights, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that if a brand samples a product through Bulu Box, they actually get all of their information back in Bulu Insights. Um, we just worked with a really, really, really large company, and they were so focused on the packaging. Wow. Right? So yeah. they sample with us, and then on the back end, we had all these survey questions, all everything like that. Um, and um, um, I won't get too far into the details, but it had nothing to do with packaging and everything to actually do with the texture of mm. the product specifically. Wow. Um, but time and time again, you know, what we see is not what people are being told. And we always see too, like what customers won't tell those brands is like, it's a price issue. Like nobody ever likes to say that. Like I Mm -hmm. I don't want to pay for this or I can't afford it or whatever. But time and time again, we see that things are a price issue. So let's say that you're in a world that's, you know, more software driven uh, Mm -hmm. and you don't have the access to a Bulu insights that you, you know, you can't pull this data Uh, or or you can, but it's, you know, my question is how do you pull this data? Um, What are some sources that, that you can actually kind of dig into, you know, how users are, are, uh, so, you know, one of the newer apps out there is Intercom, which allows you to kind of yeah. survey customers. I've heard about Intercom like every day for like the past <laughs> yes. like five oh, or six days. They're doing a very good job of yeah. of uh, acquisitioning and, and retaining customers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes. Um, referral as well. Referral as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, it allows, Intercom basically allows you to have conversations with your customers uh, real time or live um, based on what they're doing and and. and I think it's, uh, you know, there's, I had an idea, and I don't even know if this is a thing, um, and this is something that I really, really wish that I would have spent time on uh, my previous company, but uh, the, the idea of the quantified customer service. So taking your customer service and doing some sort of sentiment analysis or something on, on that language that's being used and seeing how, you know, basically putting custom analytics around how often something's be, being said um, and then quantifying like, you know, people's sentiment towards specific subjects. Right. Uh, so right. if they can, if they say, you know, the X, X feature uh, and uh, you know, if they mention X feature, are most people negative toward it or positive? Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of track yeah. that on a timeline basis. Yeah. That's a startup idea. <laughs> <laughs> but even even taking a step back from that and like looking at like a, a word cloud like that yeah. is oh, like yeah. it, I think people sometimes kind of like chuckle at that because it's so simple but it is a glaring indicator of what you should be checking out and you know we've done that for our product and we've done that for the Bulu Insights stuff and like you know if somebody starts talking about you know, sleep and, and whatever it is. Like I think word cloud, um, what, when you survey people, that's like a really quick, stupid, simple, there's tons of software where you can just upload mm-hmm. a list of words into it and they create a, they generate a word cloud for you. But that's a really good way to like, just to kind of tip of the iceberg type of, um, understanding what's happening. So I think some of the things to retain customers, if you think, you know, again, 
some of the easy ways to get back into this process is oftentimes you've got to retain a customer by going back to the beginning of the funnel and re-engaging with that, whether it's notifications. A lot of times customers just stop using your product and a simple email reminder, hey, you know, check back for this new feature, things like that will do yeah. go a long way to retain a, a customer. Um, a lot of times it's just a matter of getting back into that um, reacquiring them and reactivating them or giving something else for them to activate on that gets a long-time customer or, or gets one them to the, retain in your mm-hmm. funnel. One of the stupidest examples that I have of that, and, and forgive me for this, <laughs> uh, so I play these stupid iPhone games, and one of them is SimCity. And, um, Damn you. <laughs> Never heard of it. Are you going to send me like a thousand like candy farm rush? Come those people that send me like candy saga. Like, who are you people? So that is like the majority of my Facebook. It's like, yeah. Sarah wants you to join it candy really saga is. farm crush. And I'm like, ah. It really is. You know what though? I played one of those games one time. Yeah. Just to see what all the hype was. And it was like, you can, you know, beat this person and walk through the door or spend money and like walk through the store. And I'm like, whoa, shit, this is how these work. Oh like, my this, gosh. This is terrible. It's, yeah. But so I can't believe they're not banned. Yeah. Be I, I mean, I'm a little, so SimCity is a little bit different where it's, it's more nostalgic for me. Cause I used to play when I was a kid, but, but that beside the point, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, one of the examples and it's kind of just brilliant. They weave this retention into the story of the game. Mm-hmm. And so it's more, so you're the mayor of this city and mayor board, right? And whenever you don't come back, you know, they, they put it in, in perspective of like, these people are without a mayor <laughs> and now they're starting to do investigations on where did the mayor go? Oh, that's cool. You have to come back that's and collect really cool. your taxes and where like they're, they're starting to do like police investigations and all that. <laughs> and it's just a, a really stupid, but interesting example yeah. about how, you know, games and how the trend of these kind of notifications are getting really, really intelligent about how they're getting people back into their app. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, um, I had a, at one point, um, a deck that was forwarded to me from uh, a similar company to ours. And, um, it kind of blew me away because they were actually considering retention as, um, just keeping a customer around. So like, I think a lot of times, you know, whether you're an investor, um, (laughs) I'm blowing the lid for some startups. Um, you need to understand, uh, whether you're an investor or maybe you're coming on to a company or whatever, like understand how they're measuring retention. Mm -hmm. Um, because this company that I saw was measuring retention by actually just people that were on their email list. And I'm like, Whoa, 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 that's not retention. But then I, thought well is it and and you know it, i, I it's think a, it's it's a customer you could technically get back in touch with but yeah right. are they actually engaged right. are they giving but money what was interesting for us is that you know we always used to kind of determine retention by people that were just you know uh, receiving um, a product and then it kind of enlightened us to like no as long as they're clicking the buy button we're still retaining them. So a customer might enter and do, you know, like a freemium product and then they might move on to something else. But I think it's important to understand like, like retention can evolve. It doesn't have to be like they're buying the same product or using the same yeah. product. Like that customer can evolve into something else. Obviously for like a SaaS type business, soft, um, subscription service type of business where you're trying to retain them for that next purchase next month or next year, whenever the, you know, the renewal comes up, yeah. that's a big yeah. And retention, I mean, you can measure retention on any, on any engagement metric period. So, yes. you know, we, uh, generally we, we, 
take things like uh, have conversations. And if they had the first conversation, then you do kind of a cohort analysis over seven days and what percentage of people that had that first conversation ever are going to come back day two and have the second conversation. Mm-hmm. Or what percentage of people that logged in day one are logging in day two. And you see that, oh, there's a drop off in day five that right. you know right. you only have 10% right. left. Like, what is this? Yeah. Or so, that's when you need to send a notification to remind them that, oh yeah, don't forget, come back and... Yeah, and I think cohort analysis is very, very powerful in judging that retention. So if you're not familiar with the term, um, it's basically the idea that everybody who came in on this specific day and performed this action, you're going to measure that as a cohort yep. and you're going to, you're going to keep those people in a group. And then you, you do the same thing with day two. Everybody who came in on that day is a group and you measure those people all the way through. And so you can, you can break these out into different groups so that if you, you know, if you have a big app update, uh, on this specific day, that group is the only one that's going to be affected, right. uh, or that group on. Um, so, it, you know, cohort analysis is is very powerful in, in judging retention. So, we've talked fun about fact: ten- cohort and algorithm are also the most bastardized words used in the startup world. <laughs> <laughs> so annoying. That is true. Uh, anyway, so we talked retention. Now let's talk a little bit about revenue. Obviously. It's one of the most key important pieces of the funnel because that's why you, no. you're trying to funnel revenue. them down to the place where they can give you money and keep revenue. your business up and going and, and building, I mean, etc. It depends, right? Everybody like, knows it might just be like not cost, it might just be customer acquisition, right? There's a, at also, the end of the, there's a funnel for Snapchat also, eventually. <laughs> yeah, they just haven't got there yet. Um, also, like um, on our funnel, we've actually flipped it. So we have, rete- uh, we have referral before revenue, which I think goes to you know this this whole kind of framework is like uh, you can create it how you want but I think you know really the the important part of revenue is like how do you make money mm-hmm. well, what about it seems so simple right but I, also what I've seen is like a lot of people are like they're almost afraid to ask for money that yeah. that has been yeah. I was oh, not yeah. born with that no not me either. or use that time when a customers obviously if they're clicking the button they want to buy something using that the time. They, they clearly want to try it or whatever as an opportunity to ask for the referral yes. or other things that you can do to get them more engaged or more mm-hmm. what about referral what, you're doing. what about referral as currency so essentially yeah. you know mm-hmm. yeah. identifying the users who aren't going to pay yeah uh, and then and then instead of getting them to pay you kind of ask for referral uh, maybe for like a, uh, a reward or something yeah I, I think that's great um, before I forget though I wanted to go back to so we'll remember this part but I wanted to go back to what you said about um, um, retention. I think one one kind of pro tip is that you can sign up for other services and get a feel for what their retention is, right? Yeah. So um, a lot of times I'll sign up for like freemium stuff or companies that are you know like taking off or have a huge customer base, and that's the beauty of it is you know you can enter your credit card data or whatever it is and then watch how they're kind of using methods on you. So I think that's always like a, a quick kind of hack is sign up for those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I like using um, referral as currency. We do it a lot. Um, I think that definitely is a certain type of customer and it breeds a certain type of customer. So if your people are going to, like, it just goes back to what we started this whole thing off with, um, understand your customer. And um, um, for us, it, it works and um, but you need to understand that throughout the whole thing, right? And then you can easily get burned on, you know, kind of credits for referral. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to say on the referral side, you know, you got to, 
think not only about the customers that have come in through um, through your funnel or through how you've acquired them, but other partners and other advocates for your company. And those are referral sources that oftentimes don't come in your traditional funnel mm-hmm. um, that you should think about. You know, again, partners that you work with, uh, affiliate companies, things yeah. like that. How do how can you uh, encourage them or um, make that part of the overall business model and a part of your funnel? It's you know not a direct. Again, linear funnel, but there's yeah. other things you can look at. I think it's crucial to make it stupid simple for them, right? If you want somebody promoting your product, like it's not even three steps or less. It's like yeah. one step, yeah. maybe yeah. two. And yeah. I, I see a lot of people miss the boat on that. They have some sort of, you know, affiliate make it dead, make affiliate it dead simple. To, here's here's the would you tweet this? Here it is. Here's this button. Tweet exactly, it out. Here's yeah. a question. So how do you? Um, if you're working in a hardcore B2B situation where you know, you've got companies like IBM signing up and they have you know, 200 people onboarded and, and the individual people who work at this company don't give a crap about referring, how do you get them engaged uh, to, to refer somebody? How do you incentivize a large company that doesn't necessarily care about money to actually refer people. And maybe there's not an answer for this. I don't know. Yeah. Are you talking about commissioning like the salespeople? Or are you talking about like a product to refer? Yeah. No. So building kind of, well, it may not be monetary. It could be something else. Right. You, you ask them, how do you maybe badge, maybe gamifying? Like, I, I don't know how you do it, I, but I, I know that one thing that like, again, speaking from experience, but like, well, first of all, we totally missed the referral boat. Like we just thought by adding social buttons, people were going <laughs> to share, you know? And like what we like really, it's weird because you see everybody else doing it, but you almost feel like weird doing it until you're like, Oh, like this is what we need to do. But you really have to force it. Like you really have to build referral into the process and you need to decide, you know, are you going to ask them to refer before or after the purchase or before or after activation? Um, but I think you need to be really aggressive. You know, if you go to our website, you'll see like stuff that's like, um, you know, save 10% now and a big button. That's like, I love living healthy. And then like tiny gray, like, no thanks. I like feeling like crap every day. (laughs) And, and, and you really like, it's amazing. And we actually work with a third party company on like specifically like that referral part. And we always have, um, but it's amazing how aggressive you really need to get with that in order to get people to share it. Yeah. I mean, I think so. And, and you know, consumer apps, it's, it's pretty easy to build a referral loop into like a, a Snapchat or somebody. I mean, because it's, it's uh, it makes sense for people to refer their friends yeah, because right. they have the added benefit of okay now I have all my friends on here. I think you should be deliberate though about who you want to be referred. It's like if you're again pushing a lot of referrals to the top of the funnel that are all going to fall out because they're not the customer profile or never going to activate in that, and you're going through a lot of effort to, and dollars to make that happen, mm-hmm. that could be a, a problem as well. So yeah. you know, know who do you want to attract? Who do you want to put back into the top of the funnel through the referral to make sure that's the right uh, type of customer? But chances are, when you're starting out, you all know this it, stuff. It, and it doesn't, and it doesn't matter, <laughs> yeah. right? Like yeah. That's why you have to find your first hundred, five hundred thousand customers, and really go deep in understanding what that is before you start trying to optimize a funnel for. And for then, something. as soon as you have it figured out, it will get change. super frustrated <laughs> because it will, it, will, it will change. Yep. Do, do you know I only know the Navy SEAL signs? I don't know the Marine <laughs> call signals. When are we going to get this? Matt's doing hand motions right now. <laughs> Love Wrap that. It up, stretch it out. <laughs> stop. Uh, so, <laughs> so to wrap up the conversation, um, we, we, we've got three R's, uh, retention, referral, and revenue. All of them are equally important. Some of them are more important than others, actually. Um, 
what do we want to, how do we want to summarize the conversation? I will, I think I said this last week, um, but I think the most important steps again to, to beat a dead horse are, um, step one, defining what success looks like, um, writing that up and then also, um, breaking down what each, you know, retention, referral revenue, but all the parts of the funnel, like what that means Mm -hmm. specifically to your company. Yeah. And also, since we're cutting this episode over now, uh, can we all just stop using the term growth hackers, please? (laughs) Do you know what growth hackers are? Next episode, growth hacking. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I understand, like, if if we use it for clicks, like, I get it. But do you know what growth hackers are? A growth hacker is somebody who... they're a hacker so they can obviously build things but their entire job is to hack things into existence to grow and and it's a marketing person it's a really good marketing person (laughs) that's right that's right that's true well, I guess a really good marketing person would coin another term for their job. So maybe I should just shut up. Uh, so, uh, retention, referral, revenue. Um, I think, I think retention is, is to me, retention is one of the most important things that you can focus on in your entire company. If, if you have a leaky, and the only reason is because like churn is super subversive. Like you, you don't know where that leaky bucket is coming from a lot of times. So, it, and it can kill your company. So I, I would be very, very aware of your retention, your, your churn, uh, your leaky bucket, and then everything else, you know, re- if you do that re- at revenue and you focus on the other parts of it, revenue is going to fall into place. That's why we didn't focus on revenue because it's, it's super duper important, but it's, yeah. it's, a it's a, it's a kind of a no brainer. Yeah. It's a no if you do the top of the funnel, exactly. it, it leads to the revenue side, exactly. but you've got to have that as part of it. Yep. Exactly. A person who once liked Varvados might also like Ocean Pacific, but like that brand doesn't exist anymore. And Varvados got a new designer and they changed the fit block. And so like those, you know, and it's, it's not one size fits all. And this guy's tan and this guy's pale. So the pale guy can't wear yellow. And the guy who's tan is only tan between these months. And he doesn't need any more yellow because his wife knows that's the one color he likes and she always buys it for him. So what he needs is everything else, right? You have to listen to people. Meet Brian Spaley, co-founder of Bonobos, founder and CEO of Trunk Club, and generally the most well-dressed person in the room. My name is Brian Spaley. I'm happy to be visiting Omaha today from, uh, let's call it Chicago, which is where I was when I woke up, split my time between Chicago and Dallas running the Trunk Club, which is a men's outfitter now also serving women. Uh, (laughs) Recently acquired last year around this time by Nordstrom after four and a half years of building the startup in uh, in Chicago and, and Dallas. So I want to actually go back before Trunk Club. Yeah. You started a company called Bonobos yeah. um, with Andy Dunn. And take us back to that early days when you first decided I'm going to jump and actually start a company from scratch. Sure. So it's funny. I um, Andy and I were best friends in business school and we're living together and I'd had this idea to make pants. And I think most people at the Stanford Business School at the time were focused on the, the the eerily prescient ones, like our our dorm neighbor Megan Marks, who was one of the first employees at Facebook, were like focused on things like social networking, right? So trousers didn't captivate a lot of people's um, sort of capitalist like valley trend notions. But um, it was an idea that I'd had, and I did a bunch of research, and turned out guys didn't love their trousers, and so there was a big opportunity there. And I, and I I'd sensed it, I'd felt it, I'd never ever thought I'd when I went to Stanford, I didn't think. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I think, mo- and, and I don't think many people did. My classmates, there were about 375 of us, and I, I think maybe my year, 
you know, fewer than 20 or 30 went into startups or, you know, this certainly fewer than 30 started their own companies. Now, I think that number is closer to like 50 to 100. And, you know, the adage is like whatever the MBAs are doing, run, run for the exit, do the other thing. But at the time, you know, um, I just really liked the idea of starting um, to make a product. And I think the, the creative work with my hands builder type um, skill set in me had it was was tamped down frankly by going to college I went to Princeton and it was like a grind to work really hard to get a great job on Wall Street or something like that I went to Bain the consulting firm and then worked really hard at Bain to think about business school and so you you get into business school I was 28 years old and you kind of pick up your head and you're like I actually have some degrees of freedom I haven't previously had before and so it was a confluence of that timing plus also seeing an opportunity in the market plus also really enjoying making something um and I think the, that was really the the, the recipe that in, enabled me to embark on like, hey, I'm actually going to try this. And, and I'll never forget, there was a sort of seminal moment. It was March of 2007. And Andy didn't really get involved until after we graduated and played a huge role in helping to found and, and grow the business. But it was really me on my own for the first year at Stanford just tinkering, right? And it, it wasn't a company. It was just an idea. And I, and I was making product and selling it out of the trunk of my car. And... I, I basically realized, okay, I'm paying 15 grand a, a quarter for business school. So, you know, $45,000 a year is probably a little bit more now. Why not make up in my head this magical, like, seventh quarter and just allocate $15,000 to trying to start a company? Yeah. And, I th- and it was funny because I think at the time, you know, most, uh, most people in their second year of business school are, like, running on fumes, you know, and you, and you, and you have great career prospects. So it's not like you're freaked out about it, but you've, you know, maybe you've taken out some loans, whatever. And so the idea of like, I'm going to start just spending money trying to make labels and make trousers and whatever else was, that was where I kind of felt a little bit of, um, reluctance. Like my, you know, the, the sort of more conservative risk averse person to me was like, get a job in finance and like, and like get out of this financial hole that business school often creates for you. And instead it was sort of like, no, just, just get Zen about like, this is just this set of money you've allocated to test this. If not now, why not? And so it was kind of that plus having Andy as my best friend and roommate who was like, do it, you know, go for it. It was really encouraging me before he actually, you know, then became complicit in the venture. And, and he was my best friend and the most influential person in my life at the time and just super encouraging. And so, you know, we've had our, our ups and downs in our friendship and, you know, obviously later a partnership split, but I'll never, uh, never, um, forget the role he played in encouraging me to take that all important first leap. And, and to be honest, I never would have done it without Andy. So I'm forever grateful to him for that. And I think everybody who, who's an entrepreneur has some moment where they're just like, I got to go do this, you know? And for me, it, it happened at 30 and it happened at Stanford as I was about to graduate and, and go embark on a career in finance again, you know? So I, I feel lucky that it kind of came together and the other thing that I think is probably noteworthy about the genesis of Bonobos is like, I really was just solving a problem I had. And so the guidance I often offer entrepreneurs is like, if you, if you, if you really want to go start something, like think about the stuff in the world that you don't think works very well and ask yourself if you can solve one of those problems in a reasonably like short period of time without wasting a ton of money, right? Like you don't spend 10 years researching the, you know, this, that, or the other, like, you, you know, come, 
Or if you do, if it does take 10 years, it's your hobby while you're paying the bills as a university professor or a, you know, a school teacher or whatever it is that you, you can also do to kind of make ends meet. And for me, that just so happened to be like spend a few years after college in consulting and finance, realize you're not passionate about those careers at all. And then when opportunity knocks because you have this zany pants idea, you know, run with it, right? What's the worst thing that can happen? That's what Andy used to always say. Like, you're not going to starve, you know? So you mentioned you, know, you were in private equity and consulting and that. What, what kind of skills in that did that help or hinder you when you actually became an entrepreneur? Well, so I think, I think more help than hinder. And I certainly um, am incredibly grateful for what I learned at Bain, what I learned at, at Parthenon Capital, my private equity firm. Uh, you're surrounded by really smart people working hard, building things. And so I think you, you develop a, a language for business and an ability to, to um, communicate in a you know, in a boardroom to put together presentations to kind of, I once overheard a quote from one of the founders of TPG, the private equity firm saying to a young guy who was very ambitious, like you got to get old somewhere. Right. And so I think, I think we, I think we've probably in our society glamor, glamorized like the, the Zuckerberg. The truth is most people who are starting companies are doing it at like 28, 30, 32, 34. They're not doing it at 21 out of their dorm room. And, and the ones that work, right? It's usually, I've got some work experience and I put some, you know, I put some time in, I kind of paid my dues, I saved a little money, I met some people, I built a network. And so for me, it would be network. You know, some of the first investors were old bosses, right? Yeah. It's like the classic, what I always tell people if you're raising money is like, you want to raise money from your old boss who's wealthy and has worked with you. Yeah. Not from like your mom or some rich uncle who doesn't know anything about startups. Like raise money from people who professionally invest in things, in businesses, and ideally people who've seen you work. And so for me, like just the guy that I that I worked with at Bain the most closely, Andrew Schwedell, inv- first investor in Bonobos, or, you know, one of the first three in Bonobos, um, one of the first investors in Trunk Club, wrote my business school recommendation. Right? Like, you know, there's a lot of things in that doesn't happen if I don't, you know grind really hard for you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week when I'm on Andrew's team at Bain & Company, right? Yeah. So the, I think those kinds of relationships are ultimately the most valuable thing that I drew upon in the startup world. If there's a hindrance, it's simply um, that those jobs often provide you with a really um, high salary, a lot of responsibility, and a buttery sort of Ritz-Carlton-esque, like you start work at Bain, like you check in and they hand you everything. Yeah. And they're, it's not easy. It's not an easy job to get, but the place runs very smoothly. You start a company, and you guys know you start anything. Like it's scrappy. It's like, hey, we don't have a mic. We got to go buy a mic. Like we don't, we don't have any money. Where do we get the money? Like we, you know, we don't have an office. We don't have, you know, you're selling stuff out of the trunk of your car. And so, I think the hindrance is you've grown accustomed. It's like it's hard to go back to to camping when you've been staying at the Ritz. Right, and I think for the for the people who are like, I gotta get out of this fancy hotel room. It's not me, you know. That's a calling that you may want to get. You may want to get into a smaller, scrappier environment, but it's hard. And you know, you go you go to a good business school, and the average salary coming out is going to be a, a good six figure salary. And I wasn't making that at all. My first, you know, first time, first few years at Bonobos, first three years at Trunk Club, you know, um, you have to be willing to take some short term financial risk. And 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 you and you're surrounded by people who are making really big salaries, and you know that could be you in five years. And I think that's the biggest challenge. So talk a little bit about uh, so Trunk Club. You, how did you get involved in Trunk Club? How did you start that up? So the Trunk Club story is a fun one, and I'll, I'll give you the Cliff's notes. I um, 
I was contacted right after I announced that I was leaving Bonobos, contacted by some investors in the Bay Area who said, hey, there's this business called Trunk Club in Bend, Oregon, and uh, they're trying to raise money. They have one full-time employee. She's an interesting founder, uh, got a great idea, um, probably would, would be difficult for her to raise money without someone as like a founding CEO. We think you'd be the perfect guy to run this business. And I knew a little bit about Trunk Club at the time. Company was probably about a year old and literally was tiny. I mean, I don't know, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a month of revenue. And so I, I agreed to come on as founding CEO. And then right after I did, I discovered things were not quite exactly as they seemed. And um, the founder, the, the former founder, ended up resigning, and uh, we moved the business to Chicago and ended up having to basically shut down the company and then restart. So it was kind of a thought I'd come on, come in and take over. Ended up kind of taking over a bit of a pirate ship. A lot of people walked the plank. Here I am, like, okay, how do I put the band back together? And um, so there were some there were some tough moments early on. It, it just suffice to say, um, I didn't quite inherit what I thought I was getting. And, you know, if you just think about the bigger picture, like, w- what was the idea? Why was I interested in the first place? How did we get energized around it? Our founding team, John Tucker, Kevin Price, and myself in Chicago... Basically, guys hate shopping but love to look good. And I'd experience, I I came closer to that in my time and tenure selling trousers to guys. But one of the things that was always hard for me is, you know, living in Manhattan, you know, running bonobos with Andy, like I couldn't wear them every day. Like I, I and I couldn't always put an outfit together that started with like bright green corduroys, you know? It's like, where's like the denim and button-down look, right? And so the 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 liberating aspect of Trunk Club was we're arms dealers, right? We're selling, we're selling all kinds of good stuff to both sides. We can sell every brand. You know, we're agnostic to brand. So we today carry probably 150 different vendors. We don't have to um, trifle with the manufacturing of the product. We simply let the brands manage whole, you know, what's trendy, what's cool. We just buy the best stuff from them and then, and then sell it. And um, we're able to solve the whole problem for guys. Everything from like weekend casual wear to formal um, custom tuxedos, 27 measurements, handmade. And, and um, we do beautiful custom suits. We do T-shirts and jeans. And we're now serving women. And what's so, what's so fun about that, just to kind of jump ahead a little, is you know, for five years, the model really hasn't changed. It's like guys hate shopping but love to look good. So build out that, build out that business. And um, we did that. And one of the one of the consistent refrains that our customers would would share with us is like, my wife wants this too. And when we were first getting started, you know, when John Tucker and I were walking around Manhattan talking about should we move from Manhattan to Chicago to like take over Trunk Club and like launch this business there, we we never thought that women would be the primary target. We hypothesized and we heard from others that we spoke to, oh, like, women like shopping. The truth is, everybody likes shopping if they have unlimited time and a lot of money. The, the reason why we don't enjoy shopping in, in today's sort of incarnation of society is because it's, it's really time consuming and it's kind of not that fun and it's kind of a pain in the ass. And so the people that really have the money to do it, the 42-year-old who just made partner at a, a venture firm, 
uh, or a law firm, has two kids at home, one in nursery school, one in private school, both cost more than he'd ever thought he would spend on anything, including his own grad school degree or whatever, and uh, and no time at all, right? And so that guy is also married to somebody, and that woman has the exact same constraints. She's also an urban professional. She's also super busy, and on top of it, she's the mom, so she's far more important to the children than, you know, dads like us, right, who, who don't, who don't, you know, the guy, the guy is not clearly as, um, as essential to the household. So I think what we're finding, the women we're serving, same exact thing. Like people just want to have great clothes, but can't be bothered to do it. And it's fun how simple of a premise that is, you know? So when you start Trunk Club, it, it, you really did have to redo the entire customer experience and uh, create a new way to shop. So what's, what process did you go through to kind of think through from the customer at the early stages of how this new shopping experience would take place? To be honest, it was largely, let's just start selling clothes and see how it goes. It was not, let's get in a room and whiteboard and do focus groups and all that. It was like, why don't we just start, why don't we just send as many boxes out with clothes in them and listen to our customers? And I believe that's emblematic of like my own core thesis around the best way to start consumer facing businesses, which is fail fast cheaply. You know, and, and that those aren't my own words. Those are borrowed from the valley lore of like the best way to get going in a startup is like figure out like how how you can learn as much as you possibly can without burning through a ton of cash. And so we um you know John Tucker came from IDEO and, and I had a background at Bonobos of selling clothes and we, we we really just said to our guys like what do you want from us? So when they said we want to be able to buy our suits here too we thought, well, what are the best suits we can find? Custom-made suits. Let's launch a custom-made suit business. So it, it, the, the user experience has been mostly user-driven, user-feedback-driven kind of evolution. And the model itself, especially the in-person model where you come and visit one of our clubhouses where a lot of the brand building and the training and the sales kind of focus group would, would happen, is largely just organic around, like, what do people want? What do they want from us and what's working? Right versus having some killer insight years ago that we've exploited. I actually just think we try to be better than every other place where you can shop. So is it intentional? So obviously a company like Nordstrom's, when they're known for their customer service and they wouldn't have bought Trunk Club if, they, if that wasn't kind of an ethos with what you guys have created. Yeah. What, what's the process with thinking about customer service? And, sure. So I guess uh, I, I take a lot of this for granted. I think what I would say is, is go, getting back to your last question as well, we, we infuse every single transaction with a human being, the stylist. The stylist is a living, thinking, breathing, um, thoughtful, compassionate, empathetic. I mean, those are overused words now in business, which is amazing that like empathy is overused in the customer service world. But the, the gist of it is you could send a text to your stylist saying, hey, I need new stuff. And a box shows up two days later. Most companies can't do that, and, and computers can't really do that, right? You can't go to Amazon and say, type in black shoes and have them just show up, right? You can, you can search for black shoes, and the internet barfs on you. So we're a human being that can kind of make sense of all of the options that technology can serve up to a person. So basically, we use technology to have our salesperson be bionic, but we don't replace the salesperson and the relationship that they can build with you. And I think for clothing, 
it's far more sophisticated than music. Crazy to say, but music is one size fits all. A person who likes the Beatles might also like Bach, and if that's true, that holds true for the test of time. A person who once liked Varvados might also like Ocean Pacific, but like that brand doesn't exist anymore, and Varvados got a new designer, and they changed the fit block, and so like those, you know, and it's it's not one size fits all. And this guy's tan, and this guy's pale, so the pale guy can't wear yellow, and the guy who's tan is only tan between these months, and he doesn't need any more yellow because his wife knows that's the one color he likes, and she always buys it for him. So what he needs is everything else, right? You have to listen to people to really nail their fashion needs. You have to listen to people to nail their apparel needs. And what we have what we have done that I think is innovative, like, let, let's pick a company that's also known for great customer service, Zappos or Bonobos. They only talk to a small fraction of their customers. We talk to every single one of our customers. So the idea that you're offering good customer service if something goes wrong is, is old, is, 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 you know, been around for a long time and there's companies like Nordstrom are very good at it. I think we're, what we're saying is we don't let you walk into our store or look around and maybe have a, a haphazard experience. We will only let you, you know, be a Trunk Club member through having this warm, loving relationship with a human being. And that is really, I think, the key insight that's driven our ability to sell clothing at full price and offer a differentiated experience that makes things like worrying about like do you carry the coolest newest this that or the other you know we, we don't think of ourselves as being a fashion company we're a service company your business is also very logistics heavy i would imagine as yeah. Far, uh, yeah, yeah talk yeah. a little bit about that versus like a, a traditional tech software company may not yeah have. i mean i think from the from the perspective of a of a startup startup community there's some there's some toxic elements of being in apparel business, right? Inventory, working capital, lots of people. People intensive, capital intensive businesses are often harder for um, the community of funding, like the venture community, largely speaking, to um, to get comfortable with. But if you look at um, the direct to consumer um, fashion apparel consumer startups that are sort of the darlings of the day, the Warby Parkers and Rent the Runways and Bonobos and perhaps Trunk Club, you'll see that all of them have a physical presence and, and all of them have inventory. And I think I think the sooner that you realize, like for certain models, you're just going to have to have inventory, right? The the perfect business model would be we don't we don't take any inventory. Our vendors own it until until it's drop shipped. But like then it wouldn't show up with a beautiful handwritten note on it, right? Like so so you kind of have to decide what are, what are your core values. And for us, touching that product and being the ones that actually performed the fulfillment was essential. And for the first four years, we packed every trunk ourselves. Meaning like we those of us who were stylists literally touched the clothes, felt the clothes, and established that physical link with the merchandise. And I think that's really different than, say, having a website that's trying to do some sort of SEO thing, like because you're selling fireplacetools.com. You know, so I think I think the early kind of e-commerce entrepreneurs were often just trying to de- deliver product, and I think this wave that we're part of now is really differentiating differentiating around things like service and experience. And for the most part, you can't differentiate an experience. Like you, you're not going to sell a lot of Porsches if you can't offer a test drive, right? The higher end, more nuanced, more sophisticated products, people want to touch and feel. At the same time, you can infuse technology into these transactions that makes you a lot more compelling than the conventional retailers. You walk into Trump Club in Dallas, because you're in town, and you need some new gear, but you don't live in Dallas, you live in Omaha, 
and you've been working with a stylist in Chicago. You walk in and just introduce yourself and we're like, yeah, we can serve you right now. And we're gonna pull up an app that tells us exactly what you've bought from us, what you've returned, what you like, your annotated notes, and we're gonna serve you with a great pool of inventory here. It's gonna have a little bit more of a cowboy flair because we're in Dallas, right? The stuff we carry in Dallas is a little different than what we carry in Manhattan. But the app on the stylist's iPhone that she's using to quickly get to the core of what you've bought from us is not available to the salesperson at Macy's, right? right? They have like, hey, it's 20% off, and it's friends and family. Like They have the same boring discount tools to lure customers, and we have relationship-building technology um, applications that are not that don't exist in the retail world. So that, that's the kind of stuff where we're trying to really innovate. And are we stuck with some old line like problems of like having to manage working capital? Yeah. And I think that's inevitable and I think Nordstrom understood that and they're really good at that stuff. So they know it's not to be scared of. What's changed since the acquisition, three hundred and fifty million dollar acquisition from Nordstrom's in yeah. since the days of a you know selling out of your so uh, professionally, very little. Uh, Nordstrom's been an awesome partner. They, they, they don't want us to change who we are and what we do. They just want us to grow even faster, and they want to be a big part of that. They want to learn from us. They want to teach us things. And there's a bunch of great people from Seattle showing up in Chicago every week saying, hey, we can help with this, we can help with this. But no one's showing up and saying, like, hey, Brian, you got to go do this, or your team has to change in this way. So it's been a really nice symbiotic relationship. Um, personally, I think for the leadership team, we're, we're excited that we don't have to raise money every six months or 12 months anymore. We're excited that we have the freedom to think longer term and make really good long-term decisions. And I think for our whole company, Nordstrom helped us launch Women's faster than they ever would have been able to on our own. And it's so exciting to be able to serve the whole household now. So it's a game changer for us that they really, for them it's flipping a switch, right? We've been selling clothes to women forever. So we had the product, we had the buyers, we had the merchandise relationships. And our team was able to ramp very quickly on that. We're launching um, Women's this summer. We've been launching it sort of in a test and measure phase, but it's going to go big time this fall. And I think that's probably the biggest difference. If you said, like, what did Nordstrom do for Trunk Club? It's like enabled the women's business to happen immediately, and that's going to change the game for us. The last question we usually ask is, what can our community do for, for you? So, I, you know, it's interesting. I think um, try our service. Right? The biggest challenge we have is all these tech-savvy, like smart guys are like, I, yeah, I've heard about it, but I just haven't, you know, I'm a later adopter, right? So I, I think that's like request number one is like, give us a shot, try us out and let us know how we're doing. Um, as importantly, um, continue to convince uh, the whole world to develop more engineering talent, right? Like the hardest thing to find anywhere these days is like great technologists. And so spreading, you know, I think um, accelerators and incubators and you know, and entrepreneurs like myself, we need to band together to get in front of universities and high schools and, um, and, and try to convince these leaders of these academic institutions the importance of educating people in, in science and engineering, particularly computer science and engineering. And I think that's an under, um, underreported need right now is how, how many more. There's just so many open jobs high-paying, really interesting information-age jobs. And people are coming out of school with degrees in marketing, which, like, don't really get you much, right? So I, I, I think that's one thing that I'm really passionate about and hope, hope will be um, something we can all work on together. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Brian Spaley for taking time to chat with us. Feel free to give him a shout-out on Twitter and let him know how much you enjoyed the interview. If you have any questions for us this week, also you can reach out on Twitter at the IO Podcast. And if you haven't already subscribed on iTunes, go ahead and do that now. 
Until next time, go build something big.